Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We are in Daniel chapter 9 this morning, continuing our study through the book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 9 is a very interesting chapter, to say the least. Uh, some have called this the key to understanding the prophecy of things that have not yet been fulfilled in the Bible. I think that's probably fair to say that. Uh, interestingly, if you recall, and I, several brothers have mentioned this as we've gone through the study, the book is not laid out in chronological fashion. So the events in Daniel 9 don't precede directly the events in Daniel chapter 8. But it's interesting if you look at Daniel chapter 4 and connect that with Daniel chapter 9, there's some interesting parallels that you'll see. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, you're seeing the glory of Babylon. In chapter 9, we're seeing the desolation of the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 4, we see King Nebuchadnezzar, who was warned of the discipline to come if he didn't change his prideful ways. In Daniel chapter 9, we're seeing Israel about to receive the discipline foretold of by, well, they did receive the discipline foretold of by Moses and the prophets, but there's more discipline to come if they don't change their way. In Daniel chapter 9, you see Nebuchadnezzar's sin results in seven years of discipline from God, and Israel's sin has resulted in 70 years, and is going to also result in a further 70 weeks of God dealing with them. Uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar is restored in the end, and in the end, again, Jerusalem and Israel will be restored. So there's some interesting parallels there uh, as we go through. So... Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing right away. Let's just work our way through the book. So it says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahazarus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seven, 70 years. So, uh, when does this take place? It takes place, it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahaz Ahazarus. I'm terrible with the Old Testament names, so if I say something wrong, just forget that. Uh, but he, this is an interesting uh, issue because Darius is not found in the historical record, so a lot of folks try to make a big deal about that. Uh, they say that there's no mention of him. In fact, we do know uh, who was the guy who took over about, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but we know that this is happening in the year 539 B.C., which is about 12 years after the events in Daniel chapter 8. Also, this is the same year uh, as the events in chapter 5. So when we studied the handwriting on the wall when uh, Belshazzar has his feast and the hand appears and they're eating with the golden vessels. This is all happening in the same year uh, as that. And chapter 9 is... Somewhere in here around the time of Daniel in the lion's den. And, and that is because we know, uh, and also the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple that you see in Ezra 1.1, that was given in 538. So this happens the next year. Uh, but if we look at who is Darius the Mede, because this is uh, an issue of some controversy, we see in Daniel chapter 5, verse 31, it said, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62, and in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, it says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
And so what we see, if we look at history, uh, what the archaeologists have been able to discover is that there was a guy named uh, Gobrius. Again, I might be saying it wrong. Uh, but he was the general who was the one who went in and conquered the city of Babylon without a fight, just like Daniel saw in the writing of the wall. He, he came in, and uh, when uh, Cyrus, who was the, the, the king of Persia, uh, triumphantly enters into the city, uh, and that happened on October 29th uh, of the year 539 BC. He came in and he gave control of the city to this uh, Gobrias. So most people think that that probably is the same Darius the Mede. Uh, it's also interesting to note that uh, this Darius the Mede, it, it talks about him and uh, Ahasuerus, and that's, well, I'll get back to that in a minute. But, but it's not the same guy as you see in, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. There's a lot of names here. Right? I, I, I'll just tell you in, in advance, uh, I, I came into this thinking, like, yeah, I know the 70 weeks and all that sort of stuff. But when you do a deep dive into this chapter, it's really, you're really going down the rabbit's hole. Uh, and I spent time, I must have listened to four hours worth of Jewish rabbis trying to explain this away. And then, of course, there's other views on how to explain this. So I, 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 I'm, I'm going to try to give you the things that I found to be most convincing as to how to explain all of this. So that, excuse the, there's a lot of information today. But so, so Daniel was reading Jeremiah, and there's, there's two main passages that De Jeremiah talks about this judgment that is uh, coming to an end for the children of Israel. And one is Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. It says, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So that's the first one. The second one is Jeremiah 29. I think this is what Daniel was actually reading because Jeremiah sent this if you read 29, sent it as a, in a letter to the leaders of the Jewish people that were in exile. So that's probably how Daniel got this into his hands. And he says in verses 10 to 14, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed in Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. I will, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Uh, John Lennox has an excellent book on the book of Daniel called Against the Flow. And uh, he said in there, I saw this quote, he said, Without indulging in sentimentality or over-imagination, when we engage with the Word of God, we can sense in our spirit and heart at times the very presence of God and know that He is speaking to us. And while that's true for all of us, here specifically, you imagine Daniel reading this and he's like, This is God speaking to us right now. And so... If you notice those those last several verses there, whoop, sorry, 
I got to keep up with myself here. Uh, where he's, you know, and these are verses that are very often quoted. That you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and you'll call. He says, uh, uh, "When you call, uh, I will bring you back from this place," uh, and so on and so on. So you imagine Daniel reading that and thinking, like, "Here's what we need to do. This is the plan to go forward." Now. Uh, you say, well, why 70 years? Why did God decide to uh, judge his people for 70 years? Uh, well, it tells us in Second Chronicles 36:21 to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So for 490 years since the Jewish people had gone into their promised land, they, they didn't observed the Sabbath rest that they were supposed to. If you recall, every seventh year they weren't supposed to, to farm the land. They were supposed to just let it rest. And then every 50th year was a jubilee year. And every 50th year they weren't supposed to farm the land. And they didn't do that apparently. And so God says, you didn't follow my rules. You didn't give it 70 years of rest. Well, you're going to give it 70 years of rest whether you want to or not. And so they were uh, taken from their homeland and uh, during that 70 years of captivity, the land got its rest that it was supposed to get. Now, if you read secular historians, uh, oftentimes they'll say, well, you know, there's this 70-year period of time, but the Jews really weren't captives for 70 years, and so therefore the Bible's not true. Uh, well, there's two different ways that this is interpreted, that this 70-year uh, prophecy was fulfilled. The first you can see if you take it from the first year of the deportation. So remember in 586, the Babylonians came and sacked the city, destroyed the temple and all that stuff. Uh, but that wasn't when they really first conquered the Jews. They really took, the, took over the city in 605. And so in 605, that was the first deportation. This is from... Uh, uh, Constable's Bible commentary, if you want the picture. I'm, I'm stealing it from... Dr. Constable, Thomas Constable. It's free online. Uh, so 605, there's the first deportation. And then if you take it to 536, when the temple reconstruction begins, that's 70 years. Or some people take it from the time the temple's destroyed in 586 and from the time that the, the temple's rebuilt and completed, it's 515. Either way, there's 70 years, both of those. And so either way you take it, that's the 70 years that's completed. So... Uh, why does Daniel react the way that he does? Because, uh, you, you, you know, if you, if you read this, go back to Daniel chapter 9, uh, it says, verse 2 again, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the consummation of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And so you say to yourself, well, wait, like, if God said that he was going to restore them, then why dedicate yourself to God and prayer and sackcloth and ashes and this whole thing? If God's going to do it, God's going to do it, right? Sometimes we can think that. Uh, but I think if you uh, think about the situation Daniel was in, so the Babylonians had controlled it. There's the handwriting on the wall. The Medo-Persian Empire comes in and takes it. But... And if you look at when this is all written, 539 B.C. would be 66 years since the first deportation. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah, and he says 70 years, and you're going to be restored. And he's like, we're 66 years into this. 
the, the Medo-Persian Empire has now conquered this, and there's no movement toward going back to the land, right? He hasn't seen anything happen yet. Now, we know that in the next year, Cyrus is going to issue his decree, but he doesn't know that yet. So he's there, and he's like, here we are, we're coming up to this end period of time, and, and there's no nothing on the horizon that would suggest that we're about ready to get sent back to the land, right? Uh, and so he's, he's seeing all this, uh, and I'm sure, knowing what we know about Daniel, he knew the, the scripture, and so I'm sure he went back to the promises that were given to the children in Leviticus. So I have, I have some the highlights here on the, the screen here, but I'm going to go back and if you read Leviticus chapter 26, I actually want to read from verses 27 to 46, so this might be worth turning to if you want to follow along. He says, yet in spite of this, if yet, sorry, yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, this is the Lord speaking, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. Then I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and I will heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste to your cities as well, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate, which we talked about already, and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land and the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it will observe the rest which, you, which it did not observe on your Sabbath while you were living in it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them, and even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies, but you will perish among the nations, and your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. If they confess their iniquity, so there's a change, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if, they, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they will then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them, and will make up for its Sabbaths, while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, who, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. 
These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. So you imagine Daniel reading this. And it, there it is. In fact, this, this is so interesting. If you read this chapter and then you go back and read Leviticus and Jeremiah and you go back and you read Ezra and Nehemiah and see how all of this stuff works together exactly how the Lord said it was going to. Exactly how he, he laid it out. So you imagine Daniel reading this. And what's his conclusion? He says, you know what? We need to fall before the Lord and confess our sins and ask for his mercy upon us. And so that's what he does. So it says, verse 4, Daniel 9, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord. Now, I made a, a list here as we read down through this. And it's interesting as you follow Daniel's prayer, it's this comparison of who God is and what he says and how he describes God and how he describes the children of Israel, which I think we can all relate to ourselves as well. He says, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are, all who are nearby, and those who are far away in the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, which we just read, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been any, done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay. 
because your city and your people are called by your name. You look down through this list of attributes that are given. God, great, awesome, covenant-keeping, loving, kind, righteous, compassionate, forgiving, true, mighty, holy. And we, sinners, wicked, rebels, non-listeners or disobedient, unfaithful, shameful, transgressors, cursed, reproached, desolate. Like, this is a model for how we should approach God. We don't come to him before, before him on our own merits. Daniel doesn't ask God to, to answer his request because, hey, look at me, I've been a good guy. Like, I'm on your team, God. You know, help, you know, help me and restore your people. It's like, no, do it for your namesake because of who you are, because we know that you are a loving and kind God. And, and as you read this and you think about the time frame that this is all happening, uh, one of the things I forgot to mention is that Darius the Mede, if it is that Gobias guy, that guy died about a year later. So he was only in power for about a year. So that means that the Daniel and the lion's den thing happened within that same year. So this is probably, I would guess, what Daniel was praying about in the whole lion's den thing. Remember he went to the, at the you know, he went several times a day when they would be offering the evening sacrifice. That's when he was praying right now, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, praying before his open window facing Jerusalem. This is probably what he was praying about. And that's when uh, he gets uh, thrown into the lion's den because of all this. So very interesting the way that Daniel uh, sees this. And it's also in line with when they ask the Lord Jesus, how should we pray the Lord's Prayer? It's the same idea, right? It says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is great and mighty and holy and just and righteous. And then it's, forgive us our sins. Right? Here's, we are needy people. Here are all of our needs. Please act according to your loving kindness and your graciousness and do these things on our behalf. I think it's also worth noting that this prayer demonstrates to us some important attributes about the nature of God himself. If God chooses to save, it's not based on merit. He does it for his namesake because Jerusalem's associated with his name. He made this covenant with his people. Remember, God said, I remember the covenant that I made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And I think it's also important that we remember, like when we look at God, and I think this is a danger that we have, that sometimes we, we want to overemphasize the justice of God and the wrath of God and all these things which, and the holiness of God, which are very true and certainly part of his nature, but so is the love. The Bible says God is love. And so just like God can't be just, or he can't be unjust, rather, he can't not punish sins, he can't sin, he can't be not holy, he cannot not love either. And I think this is demonstrated to us when we see uh, Jeremiah, who wrote all these things, he says in Lamentations 3, the Lord's loving kindnesses, plural, his loving kindnesses, indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently. And that's why I believe when we see in Revelation 5, when there's 
distress in heaven because who's worthy to open the book of the seals, which are the, to represent the judgment, the righteous judgment that God is going to pour out on the nations and the earth. And the only one that's worthy is the Lamb. And why is the Lamb worthy? Because it says, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tribe and tongue and people and nation. Because he fulfilled the love part of God, right? He provided a way for us to escape the wrath of God. And so he's the one that satisfies both the justice, because he bore our sins, and the love, so that we might be able to have a right relationship with God through his finished work. That's why he's the one who's worthy to open up and unleash the judgment of God, because God just can't unleash his judgment without also satisfying the love that he has in his nature. So I think that's something that we see in Daniel that he had a good uh, handle on. And also, I think we can pull out of this that prayer matters, right? What does it say? Uh, right after that's happening, it says, While I was speaking, verse 20, and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man da Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So even though, again, Daniel knew that he had the prophecy of Jeremiah and that this was all going to happen, that they were going to be restored, his response was to pray. Pray until it happened. And when did God send Gabriel? He sent Gabriel as soon as Daniel started praying. That's interesting, isn't it? As soon as Daniel started praying, God sends Gabriel with the message, which, again, I would argue is perhaps the most important prophetic section in the Bible in terms of understanding how to fit all of this other, all the other prof prophetic things that haven't happened yet together. Right? It's sort of like the cipher that makes sense of everything is what Gabriel's going to tell him. Um, and remember, he said he'd seen Gabriel earlier. That was in chapter 8, so that was 12 years ago. And I'm sure if you see uh, an angel who's in the very presence of God, you don't forget them, right? So he was like, this is the same guy that I saw before, <laughs> right? So uh, here's what the angel Gabriel says. He says, So you are to know, verse 25, and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put an, a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So who is this to? It's to your people, so that's to the nation of Israel, and it's to your city, Jerusalem. So you, I think it's very important to keep that in mind as we go through this. This is not a general prophecy, a revelation to the whole world. This is specifically directed to the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And he says that these six things will happen by the end of the 70 weeks. 
finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring an everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the holy, most holy place. So when you're in trying to interpret this, and like I said, I, 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 I was very interested to see like, how did the Jewish people interpret this. In fact, what I learned is in the Talmud, there's a section that actually says that you're not supposed to try to calculate the times of Daniel and that these things have already passed and there's actually kind of a curse upon people who try to figure this stuff out. But the Jewish rabbis who I, who I listened to that try to explain this, again, to me, there's no way to understand this without dealing with these six things because the question you have to ask is, have these six things happened? Have, like, have they happened in their fulfillment? Like, seal of vision and prophecy, what does that mean? You see different people say different things. Some people say that's the end, there's no more prophetic revelations. Others say that that means that all these things that have been prophesied have been fulfilled. I would say it's probably both of those things, right? That there's no more need for prophecy, the prophecy's been done. We got all the prophecy, all the prophecy's been fulfilled. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. Has the most holy place been anointed? No, there's not even a temple right now. Is there an end to sin? Certainly not. The only one of this list that you could probably say is to make atonement for iniquity. And that's the Lord Jesus accomplished that on the cross. But the rest of these things haven't happened. So that tells us that this 70-week period hasn't ended yet. Because these things haven't happened. Right? So you have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we roll through here. So first you see the 70 weeks and it's 70 weeks of years not days this is pretty much universally agreed on again even the rabbis agree that it's not 70 literal seven day weeks that the weeks stand for periods of years and and you can get that even within the context of daniel daniel 7 uh chapter sorry daniel chapter 7 and verses 23 to 25 says um Thus he said, the fourth beast, now we're connecting this again with the, the fourth kingdom, which was this uh, iron kingdom that we usually say is the Roman Empire. Um, Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. That's the Antichrist that we talked about previously. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Right? Year, two years, and a half a year. Three and a half years. Okay? You see this again if you look at Daniel 12, verse 7. So it says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. So now we're connecting this Daniel 7 stuff that we talked about with the stuff in Daniel 12. And in Daniel 12:11, it also says that from the time the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there'll be 1,290 days, which is roughly three and a half years, right? So now you're starting to connect all this stuff. You're like, wait a minute, this fourth Roman Empire, there's this Antichrist person who's going to come, and it's going to be for three and a half years. And then in Daniel 12, it talks about all this stuff, and there's this great tribulation that's coming, and that's going to be... Uh, sorry, for three and a half years as well. And then when you read in Revelation 12, which is also talking about sort of all this stuff in sort of an, in like a picture form, again, you see this 1,260 days. So it gives you this insight that it's not talking about a seven-day week, that this is actually talking about weeks of years. Okay, so I don't think it's 
taking things out of context to come to that conclusion. Within the text itself, we see good reason why we should regard these weeks as seven-year periods, right? Well, then, if you're trying to work all this out, the next question you'll come up to is, well, how long is a year? Which seems like a silly question, right? Because you're like, well, it's 365 days and a quarter, right? That's why we have leap year, right? Uh, but the problem with that is if you try to work all this stuff out, uh, if you take from the time the decree is issued and take 365-day years and do that by you know, 483 years, it doesn't quite work out to the right date. So you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? So you have to kind of figure out, okay, wait, how long was a year back in the ancient days? Again, not special pleading, you go back to the Bible, you read in Genesis 7:11, right? So we talk about the flood of Noah. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day the fountains of the great, uh, of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. All right? Then it says in Genesis 7:24 that the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Okay? Then... It says, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. When? In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Arafat, or Ararat, rather. So, again, if you figure this all out, it's exactly a five-month-long period that they're there in the ark, and so it tells you that there were 150 days in the five-month period, so that tells you that each day had 30 months, so that gives support to a 30-day month of 12 months, which would give you a 360-day year, right? And in fact, again, if you look this up, almost all the people of the ancient Middle East had lunar calendars that were 360 days long, right? The Babylonians did, the Assyrians did, and so on and so on, right? So, uh, now, the next question we have is, okay, when was the decree to restore and rebuild? So if we have this timeline, we have to know, okay, when do you start counting? Okay, so the first decree to rebuild was Cyrus, and we read that uh, in Second Chronicles 36, also in Ezra chapter 1. Uh, the second decree was Darius's decree, and that's 512, and that's really not even a separate decree. He was just like, oh, wait, Cyrus already confirmed this, and the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be altered, and so therefore I'm going to give you all the materials to go and rebuild. All right, the third was Artaxerxes' decree, in 475, or sorry, 457 BC, that's in Ezra chapter 7. And the fourth was Artaxerxes' decree, and that's in Nehemiah. Now remember, what did it say? The, the, the decree to restore and rebuild the city. And so what you find is that the only decree that's given that's specifically to rebuild the city was the fourth one, because the other ones were all about rebuilding the temple. And so the general consensus is that this is the decree that was the one that you start the clock on, okay? And uh, again, there's some discrepancy of what the date is. I, in my research, I think that 444 was probably the correct date. Some people will say 445, but there's reasons for that. Uh, but I think that's the right date to start counting, okay? Uh, now, you also have the question of how many decrees were given and how many messiahs are there? So I have, this is the NASB version, which I have already read. If you read it in the ESV, it's translated a bit different. Uh, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again, 
with squares and moat, but in troubled time. After, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So if you, if you look at that rendering, it seems to imply that there are, that this time period is separated and there's two different anointed ones that are coming, right? And so uh, why, why would you translate it like that? Now, uh, also, if you watch the, the rabbis talk about this, they don't like the fact that this is often translated. You see in the, in the NASB how it's translated Messiah with a capital M, and they make a big stink about that because they're like, it, it is the word Mashiach in the Hebrew, but they're like, nowhere else is it translated Messiah, so why is it translated Messiah here? But I would say, given the context of what it's being talked about, I think that's a fair translation to, to keep it as the Messiah, whether you want to capitalize the M or not. It says Mashiach in the, in the Hebrew, and I think given what it's talking about, because oftentimes they'll want to say that this is referring to Cyrus or other people like that, and the timing just doesn't work to, to, without getting bogged down in the detail. The timing just doesn't work for all these things. Right? Uh, and they'll say that the one who's cut off is the high priest, and that's because in 70, they, they'll work it out to be 70 AD is the time when that's the end of the 70 weeks and the high priest cut off and have nothing. And stuff. But remember, those six things weren't fulfilled yet. So that can't be the right way to, to read this, okay? Uh, so, and the other thing is, if this is the same prince, if there's not two princes, then that means that this prince has an extremely long life. We're back to like Genesis, right? The, the genealogies in Genesis where, you know, Methuselah lived 969 years. Like, this guy lived 483 years? Like, what's happening there? So, uh, and I don't, I don't think that, again, we're running out of time. There's not any good reason to think that there's two princes. So I think that the ESV rendering of this isn't a bad uh, translation of this. All right. Uh, now, one question that, that bothered me, and I spent way more time on this than I thought I, I should, was why is the seven weeks separated from the 62 weeks? Because it says it'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Why is that separation there? I could not find a definitive answer to that that would satisfy me as to like, you know, this is objectively the case. Uh, the best thing that I can find is that it probably took, like this is from John Phillips' commentary, reconstruction work pro possibly, uh, possibly should be, who wrote that, uh, went on long after the walls were rebuilt. The first period of seven weeks, 49 years, takes us to 396 BC. Uh, that's probably around the time of Malachi. So there's some people think that that's seven-week period, that 49-year period is the end of the Old Testament prophecy, and it's connected with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I think that's probably the best that I, the answer that I have found on that one. Like, so, like, because they're like, well, if you wanted to say 69 years, why not just say 69 years? Why say 7 and 62? I think that makes sense, that that's the end of Revelation. Because, again, this is all dealing with God, dealing with his people. And so that's the end, and then there's a silent period for 400 years. So uh, when you calculate all this out, there's a, an interesting book by Sir Robert Anderson called The Coming Prince. He was the head of Scotland Yard. He figured all this stuff out wrote this book in 1894. You can get it online now. I bought a copy Monday. It came to me Wednesday. It's, it was even printed that week because I looked at the copyright thing and it's like printed like Tuesday. Of it's pretty impressive. Like They spit these copies out, right? So he calculated all this stuff. And again, if you take the 360-year day and account for leap years and all the stuff that goes with it and Sabbath days and stuff, uh, he 
it comes out to 173,880 days, which according to him takes you to April 6, AD 32, which he thought was the date of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was being announced as a king. I don't think that's quite right. Uh, I think there's a better version of this by a guy named Dr. Harold Honer. Uh, he wrote a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ in 1978. And so he's starting with the date of March 5th, 444 B.C., because the first year of Artaxerxes was an ascension year, so you shouldn't really count that, and there's reasons for that. Uh, so if you take it from 444, you take the same number of days, that takes you to March 30th, 33 A.D., and he thinks that the crucifixion happened on April 3rd, AD 33, which I would also agree with, because if you take when the Sabbath day was on, when the Passover was on a Friday during the reign of Tiberius, I'm sorry, this is a lot of stuff, right, but there's two possible dates, one's in AD 30, one's in AD 33. Again, I can send you my slides and all my research, I think 33 is the better date, so that would work out. There's another guy I found uh, who tweaked this a little bit, he thinks it comes down on a separate date, but the point of the matter is, if you work this out, it does take you to the right time, right? Because remember, it says that after the 69 weeks, after 483 years from the decree to rebuild and, and, and the, the rebuild the temple and the city, uh, that the Messiah would be cut off after the 483 years. So right after that, if, if this announces the day that Jesus comes in and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, then a couple days after that, then he was cut off, okay? Which would make sense. Now, the word cut off and have nothing is also debated. The Jewish uh, rabbis that I saw, they're like, well, that doesn't mean to kill. It's a different word. That's true. But again, I think in context, it works, all right? So I don't think it's, it's a bad translation. The word is karoth, to cut off or cut down, and uh, I think that's appropriately translated. We, we see the same idea expressed in Isaiah 53.8. It's a different Hebrew word, but again, the, the idea is the same, and I think uh, that's also important. And also, it, it says uh, he would be cut off and have nothing. Uh, if you read the, if you literally translate the Hebrew there, it says, and after the weeks, 60 and 2 shall be cut off Messiah, but not for himself. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. Which makes sense, too, because he was not cut off for himself. He was cut off for us, right? He had done no wrong, neither was any deceit found in him, and so on. All right. Then it says, it talks about the people of the prince who is to come. And again, we said that that's talking about that fourth kingdom, which is the Roman Empire. And we know that after the Messiah was cut off in 70 AD, the Romans came in, they sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. There's no, again, there are, there are Muslims who, who want to argue that the Jewish temple is never there. You can't debate that because you have things like this. This is the Arch of Titus. It's right outside the Forum in Rome. On the side of the Arch of Titus, you can see them carrying the golden menorah from the temple. Right? So it happened. Just like the scripture said. Alright? Uh, now, the interesting thing is it says uh, that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with the flood. Okay, which is true. Even to the end, there will be war. Has that been the case since then? Yes. I wouldn't call Jerusalem as the city of peace. That's what it means, but it hasn't been the city of peace throughout history. Okay? There have been wars. And it says, desolations are determined. Okay? And remember, they, they got kicked out of the land, and the land was desolate. Think what happens. 70 AD, what happens again? They get kicked out of the land, the land is desolate. The temple is desolate. For a long time, it's desolate. Okay? 
And then you get to this. So now we have 69 weeks accounted for, but there's this one week that's still left. And it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Okay, so now that raises the question, who is this person? And again, without getting all into it, because I'm already over time, the person that we would say this is indicating, like I said before, if you connect it to the Daniel 7 prophecy, this is that one who comes up out of that fourth kingdom and the ten kings and deposes three of them. This is the little horn, which we know as the beast or the antichrist. And so I have up here all the references to the beast and the antichrist that you see in the Bible. Uh, and we know that he is going to set himself up to be worshipped in the temple. Right? Uh, that, again, is prophesied uh, several top places and times. And if you look at this, we've all seen this chart before. Uh, this is the from the decree to rebuild, and then you get to here, the Messiah is cut off, and then the clock sort of stops, right? Because you're like, well, wait a minute. The 483 years is long since passed. But remember, those six things haven't been fulfilled, so that's why we think that the clock has stopped. And this last week hasn't started, because when's the week going to start? It's going to start when this person makes a covenant with the many for one week and puts a stop to the sacrifice. But they can't put a stop to the sacrifice unless there's a temple. And there hasn't been a temple since 70 AD. So there's got to be a third temple built. All right? I mean, it doesn't have to be... Bef like Again, I've talked about this before. Uh, Chaim Richman, the head of the Temple Institute in, in Israel, said that they could build the temple in a year. So at some point, this guy's got to make a covenant with people, and at least by halfway through, in three and a half years, there's got to be a temple there, which could happen uh, very soon. Now, the, the question of the people of the prince to come, who are these people? Usually people, for a long time, they thought it was uh, some revived Roman Empire, and it's going to be the Pope or something like that. It's going to be the Antichrist and whatnot. But you have to remember that the Roman Empire gets divided into two parts by Constantine. There's the west part and the east part. The east part was the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire went on for like another thousand years after the west fell, right? And so what I have here on this map, the green part is the Byzantine Empire at the start of Emperor Justinian, if you know who he is, right? Built the uh, Hagia Sophia over in Constantinople, Istanbul. But by the end of his reign, everything that was green was all part of Justinian's empire. Hmm, who controls that now? And are they friends of Israel? And are they for Jesus or against Jesus? Right? And it's all part of the Roman Empire. Very interesting. Right? Also, without getting into it, if you ever read, go read Micah, or Micah 5, 5 through 15. It talks about the Syrian who's going to come. That hasn't happened yet. And also, Isaiah 10 is a fascinating passage that has to do with this. And I think, and we'll talk more about that. A teaser for Wednesday night. Come on Wednesday night. We're talking about the same person, and so I'll talk more about that stuff because I happen to be leading the study Wednesday night, so it'll carry over. All right. Uh, again, this hasn't happened yet. Jesus talks about this uh, in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, uh, discourse room. Again, this is all talking about in the context of Israel. And so he says, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. That means it can't be Antiochus Epiphany. Uh, uh, what's his name? The, the crazy Roman emperor. Uh, no. Uh, my goodness. Caligula. Caligula was going to try to set up a statue of himself into the temple. That's a fascinating story. Uh, but then he died <laughs> before they were able to implement that. Uh, so that didn't happen. So God's waiting for the right for the right time, right? 
Jesus said there'll be great tribulation. Again, that hasn't happened yet. That's referred to in Daniel chapter 12 as well. Uh, Daniel 12.1, again, it's connected with this time of great tribulation that you see. And again, in Daniel 12.6, it'll be uh, for a time, times and a half a time. So again, it's not special pleading. All of these passages are all connected. And so if you kind of work it out, it all uh, points to the same thing. All right. Uh, and then finally, like I said, uh, when this all this stuff is going to happen, uh, it's all connected to this uh, rebuilding of the temple because that has to happen when uh, the Antichrist comes and so on. And uh, I think I've said this before too, but fascinatingly, uh, there are three perfectly red heifers, uh, Peru uh, Adama, something like that it's called. And they have them in Israel and uh, they are planning on sacrificing them on the Mount of Olives at Passover this year, if they're still okay. Hmm, that's interesting. All right. So, and this is from the Temple Institute. You can see the temple there. So this stuff is for real, right? And again, it it's a reminder that God's word is true and his plans will come to pass. And so, again, uh, like Daniel did, I think we have to remind ourselves of who we are and who he is and what he's done for us. And so if you don't know him as your savior, because he's going to return and come back and deal with this uh, prince to come. And so I would ab admonish you to, uh, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Right, let's close in prayer. Thank, sorry for your going over. Thank you for your patience. Our God and Father, thank you for this time that we have been able to look into your word. Thank you for the truth that it contains. Thank you for giving us insight about what is to come that we may have confidence that in the end you are in control and that you will be victorious over sin, death, and the grave. We look forward to the coming of the King uh, who will reign in righteousness. And we look forward to that, Lord. We thank you that uh, we have been made righteous through his finished work on the cross of Calvary. We pray uh, that you would bless our time as we go downstairs and eat. Thank you for the food that's been provided and blessed to our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.